0: Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. We're back again. We are. Today, I'm really excited because we, we always have I these wonderful. The I know time. we have these wonderful <laughs> guests, and today we have someone, a woman, who has reached out to us. I and know. And that's important to say because we, of course, reach out to many of our guests, but now we start. We are starting to have people hear and listen to our programming and saying they want to be on our show. And this is an example today. So it's really, um, it's a perfect circle. We we love when that happens.
1: Yeah. um, I'm very excited as usual. I always say excited, but I am excited because (laughs) I feel like they bring such different information all the time. And I'm excited for our listeners to hear it. Um, I love that this this doctor had reached out to us. It shows that our message is really starting to get out there, and she's from Canada, as you will find out. Um, but we are always looking for information, and if you have it, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions or comments, you could find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on all the platforms. You can also find us at mail.com. Um, and if you're listening to our podcast, please don't forget, rate us, let us know how we're doing. It helps us do better.
0: All right. So let's get going. Um, okay. Dr. Shahana Ali Bai of Abbotsford, British Columbia is a professional speaker, family doctor, and mother of three young boys. After the, first, the birth of her first son, she found herself deep in postpartum anxiety the lesser-known counterpart to postpartum depression. This experience changed her life as well as her approach to practicing medicine. Welcome, Dr. Shahana Alibai.
1: Welcome. We're so happy you you are here with us today to discuss a lot of things about mental health, specifically about um, the anxiety portion. And is it, to to address you, is Shahana
0: fine or what what are you most comfortable with, oh
2: Shahana is perfect, okay. and uh, I just can't say thank you enough for having this platform this very this much needed platform to kind of what I love to do, which is talk about this very important issue and keep the conversation going so thank you-
0: well, great, and we also really appreciate that you reached out to us yeah, that's uh that's terrific that's uh a dream come true for behind our door. Yes, yeah, <laughs> really glad. So, th- th- from far, far away in British Columbia, thank you. Um, why don't you start exactly. out? Why don't you start out by telling us your story?
2: Absolutely. So, in order to understand a little bit more about my story, and it's funny how when you think of everything in hindsight, it makes sense. But of course, when you're going through it in your life, just like I have three small boys now everything just seems quite scrambled until you see what the end product will actually be like, right? So Mm -hmm. for me, it's important to understand that my parents uh, immigrated to this country from Kampala, Uganda. They were thrown out with the exodus under the rule of Idi Amin in 1972. So that is so important because that was the lens uh, through which I was raised. Both of my parents came here as refugees. Um, they knew, obviously, nothing about Canada. They came here at the age of 19, so they weren't married yet. But, of course, that entire experience, the experience of being thrown out of your country due to the color of your skin, the experience of leaving everything that you loved behind and only packing one suitcase for a family of five, wow. of having to watch your parents, yeah, start completely over. Um, and they even, and taking so much pride in the fact that what does it mean to really start with nothing, with nothing. So I think with that, I grew up not only very aware of the color of my skin, but also aware of this notion of giving back to Canada as Canada had given to us, or to my parents, I should say. And it wasn't so much said, but I think you'll notice a very strong theme amongst children of immigrant parents. That education is put on a pedestal, rightfully so, mm-hmm. and that was exactly the same experience for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Education opportunity, you're saying?
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, in not so many words, you're given this this incredible opportunity, this unicorn of an experience. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. Take it. And if you are going to take it, what was frowned upon was. You know, taking a course here, a course there, what was actually celebrated was a, having a degree and a useful degree at the end of that, which is why many times careers like medicine, law, engineering are stressed, right? That's exactly the reason why. So a lot of that was the subliminal message growing up. But I think part of that too, you mix that in with a personality. I, I knew very early on that I was good at one thing and the Thing that I was really good at was, was school and academics. In fact, in grade four, my teacher actually put me on her lap and looked me right in the eyes and said, Shahana, if you continue at this pace in grade four, you're not going to graduate oh. because I was taking everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> grade four. Wow. Grade four. And it sounds hilarious now, but I would, I would be, you know, a simple two-page assignment would be a hundred-page novel that I would turn in. Everything was was more, 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 and I I was very cerebral. I I loved doing all of that, but it came at the price of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And mm. fast forward, I think I think everybody we're all so similar, right? What is I always talk about Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, and on the bottom, of course, is everything that we think about, which is you know food and shelter. But really, the foundation of that should be acceptance, because what we all want more than anything is not even to be liked or appreciated, but just to be accepted and acknowledged in society. And that starts when you start to walk.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: So with that in mind, um, in high school, of course, my biggest ticket to acceptance was what? It was academics. So I played that card, as many people might play the pretty card, might play the jock card, might play the music card. For me, it was, I was going to be the best at in in high school, which I was, you know, it was award after award, accolade after accolade. But the problem was, I was alone in my success. Mm -hmm. I was completely and utterly alone. Um, And that point was only highlighted by the fact that I had maybe one or two friends throughout high school, because many people... Just felt like I was in a category of my own, and I wasn't really, you know, <laughs> I think I was just the person who was getting all the top marks, but not the most social person in some ways. But I think so. A friend of mine uh, came over to me at the end of high school and said that uh, the only reason I've been friends with you this entire time is so I could cheat off you.
1: That had to be heartbreaking.
2: It, 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 so it was. It solidified this idea of identity as transactional. Right. If you think mm-hmm. about it, our, if we think about our identity as something that's kind of these stakes in the ground and they're cemented in. But in fact, it's not. Our identity is constantly changing. It's our value system that is fixed. Our identity is somewhat flexible, but it's our value system that is fixed. And for me, I always felt my identity was transactional. If I help you with your homework, if I give you an A in this class, if I perform the best, then you have to like me. Uh, And I think we all do this in different categories, Mm -hmm. in different fields, but I just learned that hard lesson in high school, I think. Um, But you stick with what you know, and of course, that behavior perpetuated throughout university, and it's no wonder that I found myself in the midst of a medical school class where all of those people who had being surrounded in their awards and accolades, and were also alone, found each other at medical school, yeah, right? right? It's a wonderful breeding ground for this kind of behavior. And it's one of the rate, reasons why the rates of mental health are through the roof in medicine, because it prides itself on shame, mm-hmm. right? If you don't know something, you're nothing. If you know something, you're everything. So
0: and, it was and a maybe very re- And maybe hard- rewards the perfection that is just... Uh, yeah. That can really... You know, this Absolutely. unattainable, you know, t- tough time with perfection.
2: Uh, of course, because that's lauded. That's the thing, that's, that's what's, and what's, you're supposed to be the person we had, you know, Olympic gold medalist in our in our medical school class. so You're supposed to be performing at that level and at the same time being able to, you know, keep up with your medical school work. Like it is that kind of dichotomy that you are expected to be. And I'll also be smiling while you're doing it, right?
1: Mm-hmm,
2: right. <laughs> it's that whole kind of that whole kind of arena too. But I think you you fast forward and I think we, I always talk about this now that I understand emotional health much better than I ever did, because let's be honest, none of this is taught at least when I was going to school, in high school, in university, or in medical school. But all of us do one thing when we have emotions. We either suppress them, we deny them, or we blame somebody else. <laughs> yes, that's yes, true. That and, is
0: true. That right? Is true. That's
2: the two things. And for me, I am the world's best suppressor. I can push those emotions down, down, down deep, and medical school was an amazing bandage. It just created bandage, gauze after gauze, layer after layer, because all of those emotions just sunk down super deep as I could do what I was, fam- the brain wants to do what it's familiar with. And all I was familiar with was studying in academics and performing in that way. Um, I, but I was, the
1: sorry, what? go ahead, I'm sorry. I wanted to oh, ask no, no, you, no, do saying- you feel like you were in a, um, like a room full of of people who did this similar things that you did, suppressing their emotions? Do you think it's like being in a room filled with lonely people?
2: A hundred, a thousand percent. And it was really, it was an eye-opener after we did our first, I think it was our midterm, and I had a couple of friends, and they were absolutely beside themselves because they didn't get 97 and 98 percent. And I finally, it was like looking at myself in a mirror going, oh my word, is this how I'm acting? And I finally had to look at them and say, just be happy that you passed. You have four Six ten 10 years ahead of you in this profession, one little midterm is not going to make her break it. So mm-hmm. finally I was the person that had a bit of insight when you actually see yourself, you know, walking outside your body in terms of other people acting the way that you
0: act. So is that the first and time I you think, had kind of a revelation about this of um, how you really were, you know, I don't want to say unhappy, but a revelation of how Valerie? this is a very tough way to live or Um, that you were suppressing? Was this your first acknowledgement to yourself?
2: You know what? I think it was the first time I let myself acknowledge that Mm -hmm. because up until that point, it's a race against time. It's the feeling that I must do the best I can on every high school exam, on every university paper, because what is that apex that everybody kind of wants to reach? That acceptance letter to medicine. So Mm -hmm. once I had that, It doesn't matter matter if you graduate medicine with a C or an A, or in fact, they've taken that out because it actually was causing so much mental distress. Now we just have pass or fail. They took out the grade in medical school because of that, you can see. um, And I think it is, I felt like I reached my destination already. I felt like I had reached society's acceptance because that's all I wanted was to be in a program that was passed patted me on the back, that gave me the accolades that I so wanted. Um, because what what, what does everybody want, medical school or not? There's, I hate to say it, all of us want our own version of significance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Whether that be the Very way that true. we look. Agreed. <laughs> right? Agreed. It, you know, you ask an athlete and it's the same thing. And that is why even you ask these Olympic gold medalists, they, they win the top accolade that we can ever even imagine achieving in sports. And many, many, many of them, documentaries have been made about this, suffer from severe mm-hmm. mental health issues because what's next then?
0: Yeah.
2: That happiness or that contentment, that joy only lasts for so long and you just keep butting yourself up against the same issue. So I think it was because of that. I let myself internally relax in some ways and then I had the insight to go, yeah, very, oh,
0: mm-hmm. interesting, this,
2: this, yeah, how I'm playing out. and but it's funny, I quickly, in medical school, everybody would talk about, you know, I want to specialize in orthopedics or dermatology or all these high-paying, because at the end of the day, a lot of it was down to economics at that time. And for me, I always joked that I wanted nothing to do with that. All I wanted was society's second accolade for me, which was motherhood. Uh-huh. And because, right, all I wanted to do, I wanted to take off the box, that as I had dreamed about being a mom I was never one of those people who wanted to be a doctor from a young age. Some people do for me it was, I want to be a mom. I want to be a mom. I want to be a mom. That was it. Hmm. But I had to, you know, my parents' expectation, my own internal expectation. So the minute I got that acceptance letter, I could start dreaming about what I really wanted, which was to have a family of my own. So I was often the brunt of many jokes that, you know, Shahana can't wait to be a mom. But I think now looking back That was also a cry for significance. That was also a cry for an acceptance. Because if you think about it, going on maternity leave is a very
1: socially acceptable break. Isn't it? You're going to (laughs) be. I never thought of it like that, but yes.
2: And in my mind, my my mom, uh, it was only my sister and I, she said, she painted this picturesque version of you know, music playing, baking cookies—everything was serene and sublime. And I, maybe it was for her. that we were wonderful kids. But uh, I, I find that hard to believe. So if somebody paints that picture to you and says, "You know, this is an incredible time." Of course, part of you is going to gravitate to that too. And I see that in my—I see that in my colleagues now. And I—I I, I think about it openly, not so people think that I'm naive or foolish. But I think a lot of people. Women, too, have that notion that, you know, I could take a break. I could take a bit of a breath. If I just had a baby, things would be okay. And I was the same way, and I'm the first person to call myself out and to speak vulnerably about it. And it was the exact opposite because, as you know, the postpartum period is that time that every single emotion that you've suppressed down way into the earth Will find its way Comes back to, surface. to you. Mm.
0: Yeah. Also, hormonally, <laughs> but hormonally, you have you know, if you've had the baby yourself, hormonally you have that going on. Plus, being yeah. alone, being alone on maternity leave, wherever
1: you are with a baby. I have a question. Did you feel that becoming um, a doctor would grant you the opportunity to then be um, a better mom? And I don't mean a better mom mentally, I mean a better mom, stability wise, you know, your income is better. You're better able to support them. Was it, a, what is it, Was it a platform? Did you ever think of it like that? Or that's a, no? that's a great, yeah. I wish I had
2: thought, you know what I think it was? I think it was stability in terms of my mindset that I had achieved, what needed to be achieved in the materialistic educational world. Mm -hmm. And that would give me permission to finally do what I actually wanted, Mm -hmm. which was to raise a family. So nobody would say, oh, because you think about it, when somebody, you meet somebody at a party, what do you say? You don't say, I'm Sahana, I, and everyone follows with, I'm a doctor, I'm a mom. That, it, it bolsters us, it cushions us, it makes us feel like we are something. Nobody ever leads with, you know, I actually really enjoy cooking and reading.
1: People mm-hmm. walk the other You're way. That's right. so yeah, that true. <laughs> I mean, it's very true. So
2: it was part of that resume of, of a word, you know, of those words like flow out of your mouth, that, that those boxes suddenly are checked then. So I think now, once again, you look back and you think, oh, that's why I felt comfort in medicine, because then I could focus my whole heart on on having a family, whether I worked part time or full time as a doctor, I don't think I. No one in my family is a doctor, so it's not like I. I knew what that felt like or looked like. It's not like I had any role models for that per se. So, um, but I think, in, but now, now looking back, I see what I went into motherhood with, which was putting motherhood and even the pregnancy on a pedestal. And whenever something, whenever you put something so high, you have that much. fall, Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I never told anybody, the one thing that I still haven't, you know, it's funny how I can talk to two strangers over the phone and tell people on a podcast. But if you ask any of my closest friends, if you ask my family members, except for a handful of them, that being my mom, sister and husband, nobody knows what I'm about to tell you guys, which was that ever since the age of four or five. I used to get really random, very intrusive, very um, very worrisome thoughts, thoughts that would literally take my breath away. And the, the funny thing is, all of us get these kinds of thoughts. Everyone gets mm-hmm. intrusive thoughts that you might think that, oh, how did that thought come up? The problem is, now I know what it is. Of course, I didn't know 30 years ago what this was. It just scared me mm-hmm. to my very core. Um, I know that this is a subtype of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, but the subtype is called pure obsessional OCD, whereas somebody, for example, let's say you were a very religious person and mm-hmm. that you hold that value system so strong and then you might have unwanted intrusive thoughts about religious kind of subjects if that is what you held so strong. So it always depends on where your value system is. For me, a lot of the time, it's, you know, it's, it's safety, it's making sure people like me and being a good citizen and all of that sort of stuff. So if you can imagine one of the most common themes in the postpartum period is, could I ever hurt or harm my child? And you, if you think about what is the worst thought a mom can have, that would be the
0: thought. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. We
2: have, study, studies have shown that 99% of new parents will get that thought, it will come in, it will go out, they won't think much about it, and they'll go on with their day. Nobody just talks about it. So women and men with postpartum pure OCD have that thought, and they can't get that thought out of their head, and they are so distressed by that thought that they start to change their behavior. They start to avoid spending time with their baby. They start to hide sharp objects. They start to um, use patterns and rituals so that will make them feel like they're keeping their baby safe because they are so consumed by what if. It's the what if disease. And I know you had somebody on the podcast <laughs> yeah. about yeah. that. I, right. I was just going to say that.
1: We yeah. just discussed this. Exactly. Which, is, which It's so interesting to have a person talk about it from... You know, a personal perspective mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, a, an expert talking about it about the yeah. treatment. And he
0: did say the "what if," which is the "what uh, if" is really you're describing. Good. So, is this what you? Right. Is this yeah. what you, what you're talking about? Is this what you experienced after your first child? This postpartum, as you said, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So it's
2: to be honest, like, and it talk of it's so easy to talk about patient stories or to relay facts to mm-hmm. you, but even saying this out loud, it feels like somebody's ripping a piece of my heart out. It is so gut renting. It's to hard to talk about yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. oh, it is. And it's embarrassing. It's uh-huh. embarrassing. I don't want to. And can you imagine, like, if I'm four or five, I had no idea what was going on. I was so fortunate to have a mom. This was 30 years ago. So nobody could even differentiate between OCD and pure OCD. And none mm-hmm. of that had even come into the, mm-hmm. the nomenclature yet. And she was always very worried that if she took me in for quote unquote health, they would, medication was a huge piece at that time, less mm-hmm. so counseling And that was the buck stop there. So she did everything she could, which was amazing to use talk therapy. But she was, she didn't even know what was happening. So, um, but yes, I, for the, even when I gave my TED Talk, I said postpartum anxiety, which is true. I had panic attacks. I had crippling postpartum anxiety. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I never alluded to is that underneath the umbrella of postpartum anxiety is postpartum OCD. Mm-hmm. And if you are a woman who has OCD before you get pregnant, like I did, except I never told anybody, mm-hmm. you have a you know, an 80% more likelihood of then having postpartum OCD versus just spontaneously getting, you know, po- even though you can, it's just walking into a postpartum world when you already have those neural circuits set up in your brain. You're, it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. So that is, that is the truth. And um, I hid behind the truth even in my TED Talk for a long period of time because I always say anxiety and depression, although hard to talk about, are getting much more familiar to people, yeah. but the minute mm-hmm. you use words like OCD, schizophrenia, bipolar, suicidality, people start to back away. It's yes. too much. It's too much, and then you start to add in what the thoughts actually were, hurting or harming your child, and then you have people literally running in the opposite direction. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the only reason I'm forcing myself to do this is my well, Elvis is now six. And at that time, um, I'm here. I'm a physician. I have access to every resource possible. And I didn't know, not that I didn't, I didn't know where to churn and I didn't want to churn anywhere. So I did what most people do, which is scrolling through blogs, mm-hmm.
0: hoping to find some sort which of. Which is a great followers. resource, you Google. Know, an anonymous great resource. Yes. Wait, can it I is. ask you? It is. It, yeah. I ju- <coughs> Not to interrupt, but I can. What's the difference of what you're describing and postpartum depression, which is what people Uh ordinarily think of when there's rough experience after a child? After, I mean, after, when you experience this. Is this all under the umbrella of postpartum depression or is it different?
2: No, very good question. So if you think about one big umbrella as postpartum mood disorders, then you can divide it into postpartum depression and another branch being postpartum anxiety. Under the postpartum anxiety then comes panic attacks, OCD, a bunch of other things. But postpartum depression is very, it's different. But the issue, and I I talk about this often, is anxiety and depression are like Two sides of the same coin. Yes. Right? People will come mm-hmm. to me in the office and say, oh, I don't want anti-anxiety pills. I want antidepressant pills. I mm-hmm. said, well, actually, they're the same. Right? Mm-hmm. So we just use in different doses.
1: But it's good but to clarify that because I don't think a lot of people understand that they they come yes. hand in hand.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I always say that when anxiety burns out, you can only run that hamster wheel for so long of feeling like someone's chasing you. What you're often left with is that numbness. So depression, some of the characteristic feelings are that feeling of having no interest or pleasure in doing the things that you previously used to do, that feeling of anhedonia, that if I used to love cooking, I feel numb or I feel nothing or Mm -hmm. feeling like I have a low mood and realizing that every new parent is going to feel this way a lot, but it's having it, you know, for two weeks plus on end Um, and also feeling like it's actually interfering with bonding with my child, with my relationship with my partner, with my everyday life. So either I'm sleeping a lot or I'm not sleeping at all. I'm not eating anymore. Um, And oftentimes what you might see if things are going in the wrong direction is that they're starting to have some, you know, passive suicidality things. I just don't want to be here anymore. I can't Mm -hmm. do this anymore. (laughs) That sort of thing, right? Whereas anxiety is that you're keyed up, on edge. Uh, you know, that, that hamster wheel sort of analogy and what irritability is a big component of that too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel that, um, becoming a new mom, like people have this expectation and you feel like you're trying to reach that. And then, you know, not only the anxiety part, but the hormonal part, I think we put mm-hmm. too high of an expectation on women to be a perfect mom when they have this brand new baby and they have to change their whole lifestyle.
0: Also, your oh, body physically. I mean, you're yeah, the you're, you're the doctor. I mean, you're you're the one who really would know hormones. I mean, your body is is whacked out for a while. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, you go physically more, of just brain. the internal.
2: Absolutely, and that's the thing. We keep we keep having this expectation, and even though now I, I feel blessed that we're talking about this stuff more, I think there is that. Um, that message, that kind of, that line that we kind of feel that, oh, I'm not going to be that woman. You know, it's okay, I'll support that woman, but I'm not going to be that woman. I'm still going to hold it all together. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fill in the blank, right? So, yes, we're getting more supportive, but I think for women to really speak openly about what is perfectionism even forget a newborn, but throughout the motherhood journey look like, and you're right, you go from a pregnant status to a menopausal status almost overnight, right? Yeah, <laughs> so I've right. right. that,
0: never
1: happens, heard it put right? like that, that's but you are exactly well right. Well said.
2: <laughs> yeah. So what, what does that do to us too? And then we think about their, the blood loss and the iron deficiency and the that you know that you're not eating and drinking well, and yet you have to. You have this 500 extra calories that you do need per day to actually produce the the breast milk that all of us think is going to be an angelic experience. And in fact, it's like somebody biting you. Like it's really like it's not yeah, the easiest it. thing, right? So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so, so I think all of that too. And I'm feeling now that you know, with especially with colleagues and with close friends, we can have a more transparent conversation. But at the end of the day, it's really the woman and their partner who are in it for the thick of things. And it's, it's a huge relationship um, challenge and a big piece that you have to navigate as well. But when you add the layer of then mental health onto all of those changes that are going on physically, emotionally, relationship-wise, it, it became a... My husband was wonderful, but he really tried to understand what was going on, but he could only understand how much I shared with him, Right. And most of it was too shameful, too embarrassing, Mm -hmm. and part of it was too scary even to be very transparent with him. So it took me almost a year, almost a year as a physician who does this every day, and I call myself out because here we expect patients to say, "Oh, pick up the phone, call a counselor, get help. It's not that easy Mm -hmm. because you have to admit it to yourself. You have to come to terms that... I can't live like this anymore. And for me, that day came when I wanted, I was driving on the road and I really felt like I just wanted to drive onto the opposite lane because I thought that that was the best decision for me, my children, and my family. And I could recognize that dialogue thats one that I've had with my patients thousands of times when they had expressed similar feelings to me. So once again, that moment of insight, that moment of clarity that, oh, like, this is it. That is my rock bottom. I, 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 I'm, I'm, if I'm thinking that that's a clear thought, I know I would tell my patients it is not a clear thought. So there, is, there was an anonymous physician helpline, got onto the line, spoke with the physician for the first time in my life, told them honestly what happened and what was happening. And after the call, he tells me, well, you know you're going to have to see a reproductive psychiatrist, right? And you know you're going to have to start medication, right? And to that, I said, well, you know what? This conversation has been wonderful. I feel much better. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't what you wanted to
1: hear, I take it.
2: No, no, right, because therein goes the, that, that vulnerability that patients have to go through. You just want to feel better, but you don't really want to go through the work mm-hmm. of feeling better, if that makes any sense. You don't want to go through the shame. sitting in the Even sitting in the waiting room of a psychiatrist's office is not the most glamorous place to be with your new baby. I remember thinking, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. Like, what went so wrong? Um, but I did. With the help of my husband, we, we got through that appointment. We started the medication. We went through counseling. And, the thing that I understand now that I would gloss over with patients is that you know just see counseling and I'll all be better. Well, well, no, you have to. Might, you might need to see one or two or five to find the right fit. Yeah, you can't just get disappointed right away, and that's a big message too. That this journey isn't linear
0: mm-hmm. by
2: any <laughs> by any means. So even with medication, it not, might not be the first fit too. And when you're in that vulnerable, almost tragic spot, it can be very very hard to hear that but as the patient it's tough to be the one feeling the emotions as well as steering the ship
0: yeah right and you have to be willing to really open up and t- you know therapy you can have the best therapist on earth but you have to be ready to talk and it's tough yeah. It's tough i mean a lot of work just in your own mind to be able to put put it, it out there exactly. to get something back
2: and I always say too, emotions are not about they're about biology, but they're about biography as well. There, mm-hmm. it's so much more about unlearning patterns and about learning new ones.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. The unlearning
2: yes. that's much, much harder. That's much harder because you react the way that your mom and dad reacted. You react the way that your your friends might have reacted towards you, or what your experiences have taught you. Because your brain doesn't want to keep you smiling; it wants to keep you safe. And to keep you safe, it's going to do the thing that's familiar to you. And to do anything unfamiliar feels really, really hard. Feels really hard.
0: It's out of
1: so our comfort zone.
2: Cosmos- yes, yes. Exactly. Or even if you're so not, even
0: I- if you're not comfortable, though, it can be like you're. You know, you say unlearn. It can be the yeah. way you were brought up. You can even be rebelling in a way in your own mind. But it's hard to just t- unlearn it, turn it around. Exactly. Exactly. And I always tell
2: now when I try to teach this, I think my passion for this has grown so much because, as was said at the top and in my um, my bio as well too, I work with high risk youth or at least you know youth that have gone through times that I always say that I think I've heard the worst story and then someone else will come in with a new story and it doesn't even have to be a traumatic story. It has to be a story of neglect or a story of You know, when I ask them, tell me about your childhood experience, they look at me and they say, what childhood experience? Things that Mm -hmm. many of us just take for granted, what a nuclear family looks like. But I always have to ask myself, why do so many of them have more grit, have more resiliency, you know, than I could ever imagine mustering up? And a lot of that, I think, comes down to this idea that they have taken experience one of the best ways to get over a traumatic or a difficult experience and to move on to that phase that is so hard for many of us, which is acceptance, mm-hmm. is to take something good out of that experience. But I'm not saying that that's an easy thing. I've heard stories that will bring me to my knees. So, to, but yet, But yet, these youth are able to do that. I had one the other day. He said his parents couldn't afford babysitting, so he would be dragged from drug house to drug house to drug house, where his parents spent most of their time. And he would see people often ODing, and at one point, his dad overdosed, and someone ran across the room and started something on the dad's chest, and luckily brought the dad back to life. And he's like, that was my experience. That was my childhood. Um, I saw violence. Like he said, I feel so thankful for that. This is someone who's not in their twenties. He's seventeen. He wow. said, "I feel so thankful for that because it showed me that that I don't want that in my life." I and he's tried every substance in the book. He's like, "I have that in my genes." At the age of fourteen, he was addicted to heroin and fentanyl, mm-hmm. and now three years later, he's like, "I know for sure that I'm not going to end up like my dad."
1: Wow, it almost becomes a little normal because they don't know that it's not normal to not be like that. It's hard to see when you're in it and grow up in it.
2: Exactly, you try to. That's once again familiar, familiar. But I said he's taken what could be—you could spend a lifetime trying to get counseling for—and rightfully so. But he's completely turned that shift by saying, "You know what." It happened to me. Mm-hmm. I've accepted it, and the best part about that is I'm never going to end up like you know my father, or I'm never going to be that kind of father, too. And I see that theme play out when I ask my youth, "What do you want to be when all of this is said and done? When you actually graduate, you know, high school?" And many of them look to me and say, "I want to help you so that they're never in this kind of situation." So it's definitely a humbling line of work. And the reason I take this so seriously now is because I try to teach them what I never learned through high school, university and medical school, which was the optimal health pyramid, something that I designed on the back of a napkin one day because I was so frustrated at how did I end up in the psychiatrist's office? How did things unravel to this degree? And the reason was because I spent all my time thinking that I was taking care of my health by exercising, by eating well, which is the middle part of the pyramid. People can pull it up on my website. But I completely neglected the foundation, which was training your brain, thinking better, and the value of my close relationships, which I did not know how to invest in and surround myself with people that felt like my health and my mental health was a priority.
1: Mm-hmm. That's it's so very and important. The top of the
2: term, right? Exactly. And they talk about this too. We keep saying self-care, self-care. What if we thought about it as others care? What if we thought about it as the fact that I, could, you have a community of people around you that care so deeply about your physical and mental and emotional health they, that they will hold you to what is necessary to take care of yourself.
0: Which can, which can, it can take a while though sometimes because some people can isolate themselves and they, as much as they need those people around them, uh, they can push them away. So that's a really important point for someone to hear. Um, because it's one of those, you can fight it off, but once you spend time with someone, you can think, I feel so much better. Just, you know, being with someone who understands you and, um, it, it's a that's a goal to reach for some people because they, you know, you feel awful, you push people away.
2: It is. And I think just like that idea of treatment and recovery is not linear too, it is important to know that the first time you're vulnerable or the first time you decide, like myself, to share your true story, you have to also have that one or two people, hopefully you have in your life that know, that you will be accepted no matter what. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is your cushion to fall on. That is your little microcosm of a community. But I remember the first time I went and I shared my story with a colleague. We weren't even friends at the time. It was just a colleague. And she turned around and said, You know what? Me too. I oh. I also went it's through always... And it was just this Yeah, it was this moment of, oh my God, I'm not alone.
1: I'm not mm-hmm. alone. We talk about that often. Yeah. We're like a secret society. It's really a, that's yeah. really a big plus. We, we're trying to get a yeah. secret handshake going. Because <laughs> yeah. there's it's so many exactly people, it I- happens to us all the time when we bring up our, our personal stories, too, that, you know, oh, me too, or someone I know, or yeah. someone I'm living with. It's true. I mean, the saying "Oh, uh,
0: same here, is like music to your ears of just uh, a relief of mm-hmm. you're not alone and it's someone you can talk to. So, so how do you, with all this? Um, I mean, you've learned so much along the way, and you're saying to eat right and to exercise isn't the whole thing. How do you take care of yourself? Like at this point, how do you? You have three young kids. How do you take care of yourself? Full time job. Full time job. Um, <laughs> it's a lot yeah
2: yeah and I think I I always joke that I have a lot of material for I've all the kindling of overwhelm because when you have boys the ages of two four and six like <laughs> I'll enter me and I think I, I, I'm like I got it I got it in the bag and no I don't because they it, they keep me on my toes too I, I take care of myself yeah I still am I really enjoy physical activity um That's a huge part for me, whether it be weight training or yoga or or going outside for a run or a bike ride. I will always, always carve out, even if it's 20 minutes or half an hour for that too. But once again, a lot of people who have this kind of perfectionist qualities, it's very easy to overdo it, to feel like, you know, there's an obsessive quality towards exercise or Mm -hmm. even eating right. So I do need to bring that up, too, because I, oh, I there was a trap. I fell into that many times. So I want to, I had a therapist once ask me, she's like, what number do you quantify as a good workout? And I thought, oh, my goodness, how do you know I have a number? You know, it can't mm-hmm. be less than 80, but it has to be more than 20. Like, where did that come from? I, I don't know. But it's, I'm trying, and I'm still working on this, changing it so that I'm doing it for my mind more than I am my body.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It. Right? Yeah. So, It's interesting you brought that up, and I don't mean to cut you off, but um, this seems to be a reoccurring thing that keeps coming through, Nancy, Mm -hmm. uh, through our podcast, is this perfectionism, which is kind of its own illness in itself. I mean, it's part of the OCD class, but I don't think that it's often talked about.
0: And it's it's assumed it, you know, that someone who's who's got who's the you know the top of their class in high school like you said you were but yet you were so lonely those that have the uh-huh. you know higher education they've got it all that's what the outside thinks mm-hmm. people really uh-huh. don't you know uh-huh. unless it's pulled apart like this it's a uh, misunderstood perfectionism
2: and I think when I really have tried to pull at that thread a bit more I think. I'll It goes back to the idea of significance. And I talk about this, that Mm -hmm. all of us are playing a story in our head all day, every day. But there's usually a couple of stories that we gravitate to, that we love telling ourselves. Right now, in I would say the last couple of years, the story that I love telling myself is that I'm the mom that does it all. I am the mom that, you know, is packing the healthy lunches, that's cooking the healthy Mm -hmm. meals, that's doing all the grocery shopping, that's working. And that's what I want. I want someone to tell me you're a darn good mom, and I want them in some ways to feel a little bit sorry for me. You see, that is,
0: mm-hmm. if we could so all true. be it is. on
2: our own, right?
1: We're like both shaking
2: our
0: heads. Yes. Yeah, if you could see us we,
1: the whole time, we look mm-hmm. at each other like, uh-huh, <laughs> yes, uh-huh. and you are a good mom. <laughs> yes, no right? doubt, like, no doubt.
2: And so many of us, it's that whole that, okay, that person or that stranger says, oh, look at how nicely your kids are dressed okay, one scooping towards that empty hole in my heart. You know, you you fill it up, but guess what? The next day it's empty again, unless unless you learn to fill that void yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. there's a mom at the playground who has better looking kids or better (laughs) kids than you. You're going to wonder, oh shoot, what am I doing wrong? So we all have this very fragile sense of self. Our sense of self can be like a mirror. It shouldn't be. It should be like a piece of metal, It shouldn't take a rock to just just fragment how we feel about ourselves, but many of us are walking around needing significance, needing accolades, Mm -hmm. enter Instagram, right? (laughs) Look at at what I'm doing, right? So, Mm -hmm. And that, the story you tell yourself, if you can get to what I just did, was that I want a sense of, you know, pity, I want a sense of look at you, I want a sense of, you know, see Shahana now, then you understand what you need to fill for yourself. Your partner can't do it. Your family can't do it. Your friends can't do it. So, yeah. and it's, and that, that's, that's not, I'm not
0: saying it's easy. But that's yeah, it's, a work, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress of taking life experience and just trying to hone in on that little by little. Oh,
2: yeah. And I think when you ask me in terms of what, I do to keep myself healthy as well. I think, to be honest, I, when you're a doctor as well, a lot of the times, especially in Canada and British Columbia where I work too, the route that you're supposed to follow is that you go, you set up shop, you hang your shingle, and you take on a big practice of patients, and you work nine to five, and you, know, you do what a good doctor does, which is take care of a bunch of patients. And I remember sitting in my little examining room thinking, I'm feeling suffocated by these walls. Like I don't. Mm. I spent the last eleven years of my life training for this, and is is this it? It's like is this the little like the cherry on top, the, the the prize and the Willy Wonka thing? Like is this actually the golden ticket? And I felt such a sense of deep dissatisfaction with that. And I think part of it was because medicine here at least can feel like a bit of a bandage approach. Oh, I hurt my knee here. Have an X-ray. Oh, it's fast food medicine. I feel like just plug and play me and I'll spit out a prescription. I'll spit out this, but I never actually get to really talk to you. And that's what I love doing. So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I decided to practice a little bit outside the box and pursue things more like adolescent medicine, which is once again, not it's different on the pay grade, but I enjoy it more or, I'm doing. I, I'm doing more of the speaking stuff. Do I get paid? Absolutely not. But do I enjoy it? Oh my goodness, yes. So, so I'm sad. trying to carve out time for what actually my when I'm actually working. It actually feeds my soul, right? So yeah. I, yes, I'm actually working, working to pay the bills. Don't get me wrong. I have to do that too. But I'm trying my best to carve out a bit of time for this passion.
0: Yeah. So so when I like taking care of yourself, you're saying don't skate away from it. I mean, there's, you have to really look at, look at the core of what you, what you want.
2: And your heart knows, your soul knows, like when you start to do whatever work that is, that brings you that joy, that makes you sing from the inside out. You're thinking, how do I, I'm not saying everyone's economic situation is is the same, but can Mm -hmm. you carve out 15 minutes per week to do that activity, whether it be crafting or cooking or a type of sport, like it, you that's what will re-energize you and for me it's it's writing about mental health or thinking about mental health mm-hmm. or you know or creating these kind of pictures in my head that will hopefully help me and and my patients as well but that's what's coming back to the pyramid that's what's at the top of the pyramid it's impact and it's a purpose and you don't wake up one morning and think that oh yeah i found my purpose it's nothing to do with that it's mm-hmm. doing what you love and just trying to help someone else and that's basically as simple as it gets right so, so, so you're
0: so you're saying create a balance
2: exactly exactly yeah i think that's so important too mm-hmm. instead of just feeling we all have these scripts that we play a script is a non a script is your professional work mm-hmm. is there a way to go off the beaten path just a little bit so you can find out what truly resonates with you like mm-hmm. that would be and that's and I think for the first time in my life, and it might not sound daring to a lot of people, but for me, it was a personally daring choice not to follow in the footsteps of what a traditional doctor does mm-hmm. in terms Good of just being a family, right? Yeah, and doing the thing that I, I, now I wake up and I, and I want to go to work. And mm-hmm. is there a huge paycheck
0: cut? Absolutely. And you, made, and you did that yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not like you just, yeah. you know, you, you're doing it yourself. You're really working at it and uh,
2: yes, deserve exactly, it. exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah, no, no, thank you. And I
2: even speaking like this, I feel like speaking is is creating word pictures. It's, it's an art form, right? And I think every time we listen to someone who is a really good speaker, you feel a sense of almost ease in your heart. And thank you for having platform like this so that people can actually showcase what they love to talk about. And like we said, we hope now this is becoming people's safety net, a, a mm-hmm. way that people can find, hear that phrase, me too, without actually talking to a colleague or close friend. Mm-hmm, and I'm the yeah. first one to say that, that you're not alone. And even just this weekend, I told my husband that, you know, it's not like suddenly with medication and counseling, the OCD disappeared. I wanted to make that point clear as well. It's not like it's, you know, that was another chapter and I moved on for the rest of my life. It's always there to some degree in the background. It's like a radio. Whether I turn the volume up or down, I just feel more in control of the dial now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think there's a great feeling that you have to be free of mental health in order to talk about mental health, and that yes. is a misnomer. I yeah, think.
0: Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. You'd be waiting yeah, forever.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We. I said, if I was to feel like an imposter in this society, then that can't happen because I know that this tribe that I've developed, this space, is accepting of the fluctuations all of us have on a day-to-day basis. It's an ongoing, everyday challenge, but with having more of these dialogues, at least you don't feel alone when you're going through it.
0: Well, you're so bold and brave to tell your personal you story, are. and I guarantee you that there are people in our listening audience who are just shaking their heads and so happy they tuned in to hear all of this because mm-hmm. it's not talked about often. No, and I just from this alone learned the term postpartum anxiety, and I I thought years later after my first child, who's now 31 that um, I realized, I thought, I always said, I had postpartum depression. I realized it's something, which I, we don't have time to go into, but now talking to you, I realize it's really postpartum anxiety, um, okay. I think. But, uh, but this, just hearing all this, it's not like there, there's not enough out there. So your brave story um, is really going to help. Every it's going to resonate every, with a lot of women. Yeah, I just, we're so appreciative and so happy that you shared and came on to behind Thank our door. Thank you for your honesty. And if people oh. listening, if, if those listening would like to hear or see more about something like the Pyramid of Optimal Health and your website, how would they find you? Um,
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, my website is just uh, DrShahana, uh, dot com, and the pyramid is right there. I've created a little quiz that you can take to see how well you fare on the pyramid and which maybe points might Great. be more in balance versus out of balance. And then just on Instagram, which is completely new for me over the last couple of months, but having fun just creating content or useful content, I hope, which is at the Dr. Shahana.
0: Great. Okay. Wonderful. So are,
2: you can find me. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, you so
0: much. This was really uh, an eye opener.
2: Oh, I appreciate your guys' time, your efforts into putting this platform together. And like you said, if this can help someone else and make them feel like they're not alone, then it was well worth spending this time together. So thank you.
1: Thank Thank you. you. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behind our door at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis,
0: struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1 800 273 8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.